Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Reform. Today we're joined by not one, but two very special guests, Amanda Hall and Candia Milton from Dream Core Justice. Candia is the policy director and Amanda is the campaign director. They're here to talk to us about the work that they're currently doing with Dream Core Justice, launching a nationwide campaign to improve the American incarceration system and the experiences of anyone who might find, uh, find their way into that system. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. So I'd like to start off just by asking you both um, how you got here today and what, what inspired you to pursue the work that you're currently doing. So like you mentioned, my name is Amanda Hall. I am from and still reside uh, in Kentucky. Um, so in my mid-20s, I ended up being incarcerated in Kentucky's only maximum security prison um, and experiencing and understanding all the collateral consequences that came with that, um, missing my family, my children. Um, once I got out with a felony on my record, um, you know, experiencing life in a whole different way afterward too. So that led me into direct service and helping other individuals who had actually been involved in that system as well. Um, and that was a great experience, um, you know, trying to do that direct service, trying to help women that were leaving incarceration, particularly in the state in Kentucky, they were at the time number two in the nation for women incarcerated, number two for children who um, had experienced parental incarceration. So I thought that was a very meaningful, very uh, gratifying job. But what happened is um, these, these individuals that I was trying to help, there were all these policies and barriers and roadblocks where they couldn't succeed. Uh, like it was really written into law how hard it was for these families to thrive um, after this horrible experience. Um, so yeah, so I started uh, working at the uh, American Civil Liberties Union of, of Kentucky as an organizer and then went on to be a policy strategist uh, doing our work around criminal justice reform bringing together broad uh, bases and coalitions to work on this issue, anywhere from, from victims groups to children's advocacy groups, um, you know, business leaders such as the Chamber of Commerce and faith-based leaders, and just really, and of course, our amazing formerly incarcerated advocates, bringing all those folks together um, because it's really naive to think that this system doesn't impact everyone. In every one of those groups that I mentioned, particularly you think of women and some folks wouldn't think of a victim's group being involved in reforming the system. Um, but some stats show that three out of four women that are incarcerated have suffered from sexual or physical violence in their past. So we have to we have to squash that separation. Uh, and so it was really around a theory of change, bringing everyone together to try to make uh, communities better, to try to prevent people from entering the system in the first place, to try to lower the 
the footprint of that system to keep families together afterward. Um, so that led me to DreamCorps, uh, which I do now as a campaign manager. Uh, we've, I've been here around, I guess, Candy and I started the same day, maybe five, six weeks. So we are pros already. No, I'm joking. But we, uh, we come to this work with um, a passion, uh, with our past experience, um, I'm doing this type of work. So yeah, I'm very excited to when we get into later some of the things that we are working on. Um, but I'm very excited to be here today. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love that you took your life experiences, saw what could be fixed, and then came back as an advocate to make it better for other people. That's that's really inspiring. I, I'm a little bit curious, so I have to ask, um, would you be willing to tell us anything about your experience in the system? And if the answer is no, we completely respect that. Absolutely. Um, so I suffered um, from a substance use disorder. Uh, I'm now in recovery and started getting arrested at a really young age from um, small crimes that re- resulted um, from that substance use disorder. And then along the way, there was never, you know, any talk of help or where I could get resources or, and I also had severe mental health issues. Um, and it was always, you know, even when I would try to look, there would be these long waiting periods to get in places for help or treatment. Uh, but yet the jail, or, or a prison, they will always find room for you there. So that's one huge thing that we have to look at. Um, so, and then I ended up in my mid twenties. Um, unfortunately, when I was young, my mother was incarcerated briefly um, and that affected my life. I mean, for eternity, I think. Um, but unfortunately, I actually was incarcerated for the same crimes that my mother was convicted of. Um, so that generational, and I ended up in that maximum security prison. I got two five-year sentences for two prescription drugs and, um, ended up in that prison and it was like three and a half hours away from my family. So I never received a visit the whole time I was there. Um, I never spoke to my children, um, while I was there, uh, when I was there, there was a correctional officer that actually got charged with over a dozen, um, instances of sexual assault, um, on the individuals incarcerated there. So, um, the system in in and of itself, my experience was very traumatizing, not to mention that I came to the system with all kinds of trauma, um, as a survivor of, um, sexual assault myself. Like I said, I'm very, I was very interested of always, having those victim groups at the table and to see how they could help and assist and how we could change that narrative. Um, so yeah. And then I thought the whole time I was in there, this is horrible, but when I get out, it will be better. You know, like this is, uh, I'm doing my time. I, you know, this is the worst of it. And then getting out, not being able to vote. I couldn't find a job. I couldn't find housing, uh, I remember, um, you know, I stayed in a homeless shelter for quite a while, um, just the massive impact. Uh, and, you know, I was only incarcerated for 13 months. So imagine someone with with years and years 
Um, so just understanding just how harsh the system is and how it really doesn't do the job of rehabilitating or, or trying to bring families together or any of those things that we, I think most Americans would want it to do because we want to be safer. We want our communities to be better. We want our children to have a better future. Um, I just didn't see those things. So it was really on my heart and part of my spirit that, um, that I had to try to make it better for other people. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was very emotional and very personal. And I want to thank you for being vulnerable with us in that way. Well, no worries, because when you're in the system, they usually blast it all over mugshots.com and Google. So all this is pretty public. <laughs> so I, I, I'd like to tell my own story because I get to hold the narrative. I get to, I, that is empowering in some ways even though it's hurtful, it's empowering to be able to have that narrative, that story back. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, thank you for, for um, being raw and being real with us and sharing your experiences. Um, you mentioned earlier that a lot of, a lot of people that are incarcerated, but especially a lot of women have been victims of violence in the past as, as have you. Um, with your experience, would you say that there were, there were, there were resources in place during your time in incarceration to support your previous trauma. And were there resources when you left to help with rehabilitation after that were provided to you or in any way you were guided towards any of these things? Or did you have to really seek a lot of this out on your own? Yeah, during um, incarceration, there was no kind of resources uh, to deal with deal with the trauma. Uh, I remember a, a woman in my dorm had actually been shot in the face by a partner. And yeah, I, I, I mean, none of us, there was, there was a small program, but the wait list was often so long and there were so many requirements to get into that program. So uh, it was really disheartening, um, really sad. The only people that we had in there was, was each other, um, you know, to go through that. Um, so afterward, um, uh, parole did suggest that I go to a substance abuse program. Um, so that is really what helped me get on my feet. Um, what's really unfortunate was I sometimes imagine what if that would have been at the beginning, you know, what if I wouldn't have had to go to prison and my family didn't have to go through that. And I didn't have to leave out of there with a felony conviction and have all those hurdles. Um, so while we talk about this work and how to, um, you know, look at folks that are currently incarcerated and help them and help reentry, I think the preventative measures and the diversion and and how to amplify resources in the community on the front end so we can slow that number of people that get in the system in the first place is um so very important because I just didn't didn't have those and a lot of people and I'm a I'm a white woman so like it has to be said that I had so many privileges in this system 
So, so many folks have it so much worse than me. So we have to, we have to uh, fight for those resources. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for touching, touching upon the race topic as well. Um, um, again, I'm really glad that we have uh, just like looking at our panel today, such a diverse group to be able to speak to really the pendulum of experiences. Um, so with that, um, Candia, would you mind um, sharing your background and what's brought you here today? I'm sure. Um, and, and, you know, first, let me start off by by thanking uh, you, Rhea and Nua, Nua for your commitment to this issue. Um, uh, and that is uh, reforming our criminal justice system and really shedding light um, in areas where there is darkness. So we appreciate you for that. Uh, but also as I listen to Amanda's story and I've, you know, she and I have had the opportunity to get to, to know each other over these last five weeks. And as I listen to her story, um, there are three things that, that, that stick out to me with respect to Amanda. And I think we should lift these things up um, because, you know, she is a person who is courageous, right? Um, and, 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 has persevered and, and has triumphed. Uh, and so when I listen to her story, um, as much as we, it elevates the need to, to, to change the system, um, the person, Amanda, um, personally, um, you know, she inspires me. Uh, her story inspires me and in how she's come out on the other side of this um, as a person who is triumphant um, and, and is giving to others uh, what was not given to her in the process. So, um, you know, I thank her for, for being in this space and being an advocate and being an inspiration to, to so many people. Um, my name is Candia Milton. I am the policy director for Dream Corps. Uh, you know, when I talk about my experience, particularly in politics, and policy, it really goes back to my birth. You know, I, I don't know a life without politics. Uh, and my mom tells the story. I was born July 24th, just had a birthday. Um, was born July 24th, and we were working a campaign in October. Uh, and so, and ever since then, I've been, been involved. Uh, we would have baseball games, uh, and my mom would take our little league team and we'd walk from the baseball diamond back to our neighborhoods going door to door, uh, working somebody's political campaign. Um, I remember those times. Now, when I think about it, I, you know, I think about them in a fond way, but at the time, man, I was mad as heck. I still want to play more baseball, but yet we were campaigning. Um, but for the last 17 years, I've sort of been working in the intersection of policy and politics. Uh, yeah, I was, the liaison to city council uh, right here in my hometown, the city of Detroit, uh, was then promoted to deputy chief of staff, uh, and then from there, chief of staff and deputy mayor for the city of Detroit, um, where I managed uh, both the federal uh, and state contract, lobbying contracts. Uh, and so have done advocacy from that perspective uh, you know, in the administration, you know, for about, I did that for about six or seven years. Uh, and so have been doing some consulting since then. 
but that doesn't answer the question of what has me in this position today. Uh, while I was at the city of Detroit, you know, I made a bad decision, uh, and that bad decision I had to accept responsibility for. It. Um, and you know, in accepting responsibility, I spent some time in a federal correction facility. Uh, now, when I say accept responsibility, you know, that's a term of art in the federal system, right? If you cooperate, then by definition, they say you've accepted responsibility. In other words, if you you say I, I did it then that's a separate responsibility. But I took a, a deeper dive at accepting responsibility. It was more about taking a look at what led me to make the bad decision um, and really being introspective and, and meditating and praying on that um, and praying for the strength to not do that again, but understand not just the actions, but what led me to, my, to, to, to those actions. And in that process, there was a correction, but I will say it was a self-correction. Uh, but what I also learned in that process is that this correction system was far from that. You know, it didn't do much to, to correct the wrong. Most of the people that I've spent time with will acknowledge that they did wrong. They would acknowledge um, that they are endeavoring to, to pursue a better way of life. And I tell you what, some of the most courageous people that I met, some of the more upstanding people that I met, some of the more honest folks that I met were right there in Morgantown, West Virginia, where I served what I would say is 11.9 months um, in that correct correctional facility. And so, you know, I come to this work because not only of my experience in that facility, but but also because of the experience and the emotional connection that I gained to those the the men who were were serving time with me there. And I, I refer to them as my brothers. And and I just thought it was important that if I am going through the challenges that I ultimately had to go through given all the connections and all the relationships uh, that I've had, imagine with what someone else, with these other guys are having to go through. Uh, and so I had to uh, continue to reflect on and pray on, you know, what is God's purpose for me? Why am I in this situation? And what did he put me in this situation to do? And so I just thought it was important uh, in answering that call uh, to be of service to to my brothers and sisters who really don't know that they have a voice. Uh, and so my approach to advocacy in this space is not just to advocate, but to help others see that, that, that they have a voice and thus we have a voice and a say in the matter. And so, you know, I just thought bringing, given that whole experience, you know, I'm not, you know, the media would try to define you as a bad guy. Right. Uh, but I know that I am more than the bad decision I made. And so I can bring that entire life experience um, to really have an impact on people who don't recognize that they have a voice in the matter. And so I don't just come as the voice of others, but we encourage those who have been impacted by the issue to 
bring their voices to the table. That's really amazing. Thank you so much for all of the work that you do. And thank you for the story that you shared. So I wanted to ask a little bit more about what you mentioned regarding self-correction. I thought that was a really powerful term that you used because it's widely recognized that the system doesn't do enough to help people help themselves. It's sort of meant for retribution, right? It's based on a retributive model. It's based on punishment rather than a rehabilitative model. So I was wondering if you could speak more to the resources or lack thereof that you found within the system and how you were able to seek out resources for yourself to lead to that self-correction. Yeah, thank you for, for that question because yes, I, I did intentionally say self-correction, right? Um, because there is no intentional effort within the facilities, uh, within the system, uh, it seemed to do to do that. You know, a lot of, you know, this is a traumatic situation and, and, and it doesn't matter what led you to that place, it, being incarcerated, losing your freedom, you know, it, it's, it's a traumatic situation. The system does not acknowledge that. And it was only upon reflection that I recognized that a lot of the anger that I was feeling in that moment uh, was 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 connected to, you know, the fact that you know, I was locked up uh, and didn't have the ability to do to be of assistance to my family. Right? You know, when I when I know that my wife is is struggling to make ends meet to get the kids to school, to get them to, to basketball practice, to get them to band practice, uh, to get them to the babysitter. She also has to work every day, right? And, and you know you can't do anything about that, right? It, it causes a level of trauma, but there's no support in that space to get you through that. And in the case of some of the guys that I referenced, they grew up in situations where the only thing they know is the streets. They don't know a life with, as much as I don't know a life without politics, they don't know a life without the streets. And so there is no effort to help them understand that there is a different way than the way that you know. Uh, and unless there is an aha moment for them, then in all likelihood, they're gonna go back and revert back to doing what, they're, what, you know, what they know which is why I think this first step act is so important, you know, where it has that component where it does, you assess the recidivism rate, the risk, recidivism risk of, of, of each person who's incarcerated. And then you create a plan that in, incorporates, you know, job training, uh, job placement, um, uh, mental health, you know, to help them folks to deal with the trauma, you know, transitional services. That's why that, that piece of legislation and the passage of it is so important because it can, it now takes a system that is called the correction system, but as we know, it's been wrong for so long, right? But it now it puts the correction back into the system. And so unless you're there with a certain level of consciousness about what you're going through, then you don't understand that there, you know, what correction looks like. I think it's incredible hearing both of your experiences and having you so openly sharing and sharing a time in your life that I think others may want to forget and never discuss again. I know that 
the amount of time that you guys spent there was incredibly traumatic being away from your family and your loved ones. But the power of how you're using your voice now to not only share your experience and take back your narrative, but also share a voice for an often forgotten population is truly empowering. So again, thank you so much. After both of your separate experiences with the criminal justice system that you experienced firsthand, um, what would you say is the biggest change that you want to see made in the criminal justice system today? Well, I think this is a really hard question uh, because there's so many different components. You know, we got where we are right now, not because of one specific policy. You know, this is decades and decades and decades of um, tough on crime, on policies that disproportionately, you know, impact Black Americans, communities of color. So there's so many different components. I think that one that we could really um, start on, one that's at, at the front of my mind right now because my colleague Candia supports it and is working on it. You know, we look at, I'm, I'm a person that was incarcerated for a, a drug crime and a person that suffered from um, substance use disorder, like I mentioned. Thank goodness uh, I'm in recovery and was able to access those resources. But I look back at, you know, I was able to uh, go into a treatment center you know, nearly a decade ago, which helped to save my life. But I think back in the 80s um, when, you know, I was knee high to a grasshopper. That's what they say here in Kentucky. So it was a little thing. But I remember uh, the crack epidemic, as they called it. And now as I've grown older, understanding and seeing how uh, communities were tore apart or, or ravished and how how drug use or anything to do with drugs was how the answer was always uh, the correction system and how steel, steel and, and for so long in the future, how generational that is. So, you know, we have began to make strides to try to repair some of that harm. And um, we're not even close to where we should be. Um but looking at uh, things that some of our partners and, and us supporting a federal bill that's going through right now is the Equal Act, which would actually make, um, you know, crack sentencing uh, the same as cocaine. Um, you know, we know that used to be uh, one to 100. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it, it got down to uh, one to, to 18. So if it's a crack conviction, you're, you're um, punished 18 times, you sort of say as harshly. So now the Equal Act makes it just as the title states equal. Um, you know, in, in my other life, I am a social worker and had worked with the substance use disorder population uh, for years, along with a bunch of other populations. Uh, but I know at its core that substance use disorder is just that it's, it's any substances. So why are we treating these two drugs differently? Like we know the, the percentage of black Americans that are sentenced under this horrible 
crack disparity. So like that's something right now at this moment, but you all could bring me, me and Candia every week. We'll tell you something different <laughs> because there's so many, like I said, we can talk about families. We can talk about women. We can talk about prevention, reentry, but that's something right now right now that's going through Congress that, in my opinion, would make a huge impact. And I'm so thankful uh, for uh, some of our partners like FAM and U.S. Justice Action Network. And like I said, um, Candia is, is supporting that as well. But that is something right now we can start with repairing some of that harm. I mean, it is only the tip of the iceberg, but that's something everyone should be in support of and be pushing right at this moment. And I, I do agree um, with, with, with Amanda. There, there's so many um, interconnecting pieces that would make up a, a reformation of the system itself. Um, and, the, and, and currently we are uh, looking to advance the Equal Act uh, it just passed out of committee, uh, and we celebrated that the other day uh, with our, our partners. Um, but then also, you know, we got we have to now get it passed into law and out, out of the House and, and over to the Senate. So we are excited about that. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, we can talk in the context of, of what would be the single best thing that we can do today uh, from a legislative perspective. And, and we can get one win after another, right? But I want us to really focus on the notion of, quite frankly, changing the culture around uh, this, this criminal justice system. Like, you know, what, what was the mindset that led us to where we are today and how do we change that mindset? Why is it acceptable to, 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 to in the beginning, to, to lock one group of people up for a hundred times more than, than another group of people, right? Um, you know, so often in, 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 in the organizing space, we talk about it, you know, in the context of, you know, this is a result of the demonization of people of color, right? And so if you demonize someone, then you can do just about anything. Uh, you can lock them up and throw away the key and, and no one would care, right? Uh, and, and that's what's happened, you know, over, you know, the, you know, over the, since, since the, you know, the, the omnibus crime bill. Um, that's what made allowances for it, right? And so if, if we think about the images we show of, of quote unquote criminals, you know, think about what they look like. And then now you have permission to lock them up forever. And so we, we're, we want to not only change the laws, we want to change the narrative. We want to change the culture. And then once we start to change that, 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 that culture, uh, then we can see a system that, that's more just. Something else that can be done today, quite frankly, that will begin the process of changing that culture is that President Biden um, can allow those 4,000 um, formerly incarcerated citizens, those 4,000 citizens who were behind bars, who are now in, in home confinement, um, he can find a way to keep them at home. What we know is that the program that, that, that Donald Trump implemented, um, let's just be honest, it's, it's been a success. 
many of these individuals who are mothers, who are fathers, um, you know, they're at home right now. And not only are they being are they being productive members of society, but they are being leaders and pillars in their communities. And so, you know, they you have a model right now that exists um, that that says that you know many of these of the nonviolent offenders don't need to be locked up behind bars. You know, there's another way of making certain that whatever message you want to send, you can send that message, but they can also be productive members of their society. And saying all that, they're children, right? They're now spending time with their children in the home. What does that do to the child once that mom or father or, or, or caregiver, that, that aunt, uncle or grandmother is, or grandfather is now sent back to prison, right? Uh, and so, you have to think about that. I mean, there is an opportunity. Again, the program has been successful. There has been very few. Uh, when you take a look at the 24,000 um, folks who were sent home, less than 1% have violated the conditions of their home confinement. And I don't know about you, but I'm certain you can get into a whole lot of medical schools if you are at 99 point something percent grades, right? If, that, if that's your, if that's your, if you got a, a 99% grade point average, you can get about just in by any medical school you, 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 you want to get into. Well, this one right here would get you, the success of this program gets you into Harvard, right? And so there's a, there's a reason to, to, to continue it and quite frankly, build off of that. And so I think we think that President uh, Biden can really make a big statement. He can go a long way in fulfilling his campaign promise today and began to change the culture around our criminal justice system. Those are all awesome ideas, insights and thoughts. And it leads me to ask, what kind of work do you do uh, currently with the organization that you're a part of? And what work does that organization broadly look to in terms of reforming the incarceration system in the ways that you all talked about? Absolutely. So something um, very exciting that we have going on at Dream4 is our campaign to shrink the amount of federal prisons. Um, so the federal prison incarceration rate, I mean, we're down by over 30 percent. Um, unfortunately, none of these prisons have been closed at this point. So it's really looking at, isn't it time for us to make a true stride in mass incarceration to close some of these structures, these facilities, um, a lot of which are in really bad condition. Some of them exist, have existed for so, so long and are outdated. And then to be able to close those and repurpose um, the cost savings to do just, I think some of the stuff we've been talking about for reentry or prevention. I mean, the, the possibilities is truly endless. Um, when we look at, at, at public safety, um, that's often something we're missing is those resources. Like what does that, that really, that really look like? So this is a, a campaign that, 
um, we're working on right now. Uh, like I said, we just launched. Uh, it's also an opportunity to uplift uh, because I think you've seen with me and uh, Candia, we're not either or people, we're both and. Uh, so while we're working on this too, to uplift this uh, legislation in Congress to really put out the word of, of keep them home. Um, so yeah, all of those things working in tandem, but this prison closure, it's really interesting because some folks may not know, but um, there's been a lot of state prisons that have been closed, not the same case for federal prisons. Um, and some of them have even been repurposed uh, we have one in Florida that was repurposed and is now a homeless shelter. Uh, yeah, we have one in North Carolina that's re been repurposed. And now it's like this agricultural growing center. We have one that's now a movie studio. Like it is like these states, we have them that's been used for so many different things. Um, and what a, what a different way to imagine community, to imagine. And then we have the cost savings of closing these. And like I said, reinvesting them in those resources. So the prison closure campaign, please get involved. Jump on over to DreamCorps. Um, click on there, become an active participant. Uh, we really care, like Candia said earlier, formerly incarcerated folks, family members, or just allies. Uh, you know, everyone uh, needs to get involved. Um, so yeah, so that's our, that's uh, the big thing uh, that we're concentrating on now. And Candia can fill us in on um, he's mentioned some of the legislation, but other stuff that, that he's working on as well. But he's my partner on the campaign, too. I mean, y'all met Candia. He's brilliant. So uh, I go to him for that, too. Yeah, I mean, and what Amanda is speaking to is, is uh, when it comes to this campaign, you know, we, we really believe that it's important for us to invest in people. Right. I mean, it, it, you know, th there's been such a, a, a tremendous investment in, in prisons. Uh, but we believe that when you invest in people, uh, you get a real return on that investment. Um, the community is better for it. The economy is better for it. Um, and our society is better for it. And really, it's, it, 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 when we invest in people, it's, it's a statement of our values. Right. I mean, people over prisons is really a statement of our values. And so that's what this closure, uh, this um, our efforts to close more prisons is about. It, you know, how do we, you know, take the resources, invest in people, uh, and and in and in turn invest in families and communities. Um, and, and when you take it, look at any of our priority legislation, um, it speaks to that, right? And so you know, we mentioned the Equal Act, uh, the Reverse Mass Incarceration Act, uh, the prohibiting punishment uh, of acquitted conduct act, um, uh, smarter pre-child detention act for, 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 for drug charges, and, and then the first step implementation act. And so all of those, if you take a look at all of those bills, it, it, it is about ultimately reinvesting in people. And so the, the prison closure campaign, which is about shrinking, let's be clear about that, it's about shrinking uh, the prison system. Uh, it, 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 
forces us to refocus our efforts and attention to people. Uh, and, and so if you take a look at the legislation and that, that's really in a nutshell, what it's about and it's what Dream Core Justice is about. Thank you for sharing that. I think I'm in awe of hearing, this is the first time I've, I've um, heard of a campaign catered at closing prisons. And I love what you just said. It's about reinvesting in community growth, not individual correction, right? It's about the people, not the individuals. And I think that's what, what um, Amanda, what you just described of these places that were formerly prisons are now homeless shelters, are now like spaces for people that didn't previously have a space, right? Whether it's recreational or genuinely a place to live, a place to eat. We're now providing that. Um, that is such a cool campaign. That is such a cool campaign. And thank you so much, both of you, for sharing that. Um, this is the first time I've heard of, of anything quite like that. How do you think that someone who is interested in getting involved with work like what you're doing could get involved, whether there's someone like us who comes from a research background and then ended up getting interested in the academia of this topic before meeting all of the people and really becoming interested in the community engagement work or someone who's actually been touched by the incarceration system in any capacity, whether they've been through the system themselves or known someone who's gone through the system? Absolutely. So there's so many ways to get involved and engage and everyone can play a part. And this gives me an opportunity to shout out our interns who are our research heads in academia, Tori, Alessia, and Chelsea. Um, so always come and apply for an internship at DreamCore for one. Um, and then Come on over to DreamCourt to sign up to be part of our network of one of our allies and partners. We also have something amazing called the Empathy Network, which is primarily folks that have been directly impacted, um, you know, through the system. Uh, so that's a beautiful, collaborative, supportive space. Uh, and also there's always opportunity uh, at your local level or grassroots level. Um, look into the folks that are, are doing work there um, and engage with some of those groups. Uh, like I said, you know, I'm from Kentucky and, and, and we had groups uh, doing that work and, and now just going to do it on a federal level and uh, in different states. So, yeah, so do that. Do a quick Google search. Uh, like I said, though, come join us at DreamCorps. Come uh, be part of our team, too. We let, like we really take it seriously, our supporters and allies and engaging those folks. But there's all kinds of different ways. Please don't think uh, because you don't know exactly how you would fit that you won't. Uh, because I think what we've stressed over and over is that this issue impacts all of us. So we want everyone on board. Uh, and Candia, you want to chime in? I think you covered just about about everything. Um, you know, wh whether it be joining Dream Corps directly, um, if you're impacted, folks being a part of our empathy network, um, recognizing that we are all impacted in some kind of way, um, signing on and signing up. Uh, I do think signing and expressing your support for. Um, the our prison closure campaign, you know, going on right onto our website and saying, "Hey, listen, I, I'm with you guys on this," uh, and then indicating your level of interest in in participating. 
Um, you know, I guess as a as a policy wonk, um, you know, I that research is, is important. Uh, I recognize that you know I do come some also from a background of organizing, and a lot of times we get out there on the rah rah, um, and and we have these anecdotes, um, but that research um, really gives us the, the 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 type of ammunition um that we need uh to make our case and so they think when we show up and we express our our emotions sometimes they think we're crazy but when we have the type of research that you all are doing um this that says okay well here's the data to support why we're mad um that 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 is really important and academia uh is really important to our our work um now we don't get bogged down in it. We don't let it get in the way. Uh, but we take a look at that research. Uh, we we analyze it, and then now that we have it, how do we use it? Uh, and so that that space, I guess, coming from a policy perspective, is so important um, to to the work that I do every day. Um, and quite frankly, as Amanda is knocking on doors and and shaking trees, I, I think she will agree it's important to the work that she does every day. But you know, again, I want to reiterate um, our our gratitude for you all doing the work that you do. Um, you lifting up this issue. Um, this is not just a space um, to talk about the issues. It's not a space just to rom romanticize the problem. Um, this is a conversation that is about how do we bring about solutions to to make the change we want to see in our our communities and and particularly this, the criminal justice system. So um, I wanna thank you again for the, for the work that you do. This is actually a pretty recurring theme this season among all of the episodes that we've recorded, the interviews that we've done, that we need all kinds of people with different skill sets to work on this. Not only the researchers and the academics, but people like you and Amanda who are amazing at community organizing and who are fantastic storytellers and are able to harness the power of your experiences and turn them into something positive and productive, not only for yourselves, but for other people. So thank you for the work that you do. And thank you so much for taking the time to share that with us. Thank you both so much. It really, this has been such an eye-opening conversation. And again, thank you both for sharing your, your own experiences and the kind of the cross-section between, again, policy advocacy and campaigns. I mean, you guys, together, you see why you need, like Rhea just said, you need someone from every field. You truly do. Um, so, so again, thank you both so much. And um, we look forward to talking to both of you again soon and seeing where your work goes and following these campaigns and policy changes. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, y'all.